And if you want a title for this morning's message, I've called it A Relationship Begins. You know, just last week at church, I was talking to a couple and they'd brought some friends along. And as I was talking to them, I, I was getting to know them a little bit, their friends, and find out how they came to the church and all that type of thing. And then I asked this question of this couple as they brought their friends along. They said, so how did you guys meet? And that's where the conversation really became quite, quite animated. They were leaning in, they were talking, they were getting more excited. And as they were relaying to me about how they met, one thing was clear. These guys are getting excited about their relationship. They're grateful to God for their relationship. And affections were clearly being stirred. As this couple talked about how they met, I could have just left the room and no one would have noticed because they were just enjoying each other in that moment. And that got me to thinking about this retreat. See, as that couple retold their stories about how they met, their affections for one another clearly grew. And so today I want to talk to you about how you met Jesus as theologically defined so that your affections may grow for him. Because I think it's as we retell the story of how you met that you will find the Holy Spirit and your affections are mingled all the more and you become more amazed. Amazed that you get to know him at all. Amazed at actually how he got to know you. So let's read together Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we we pray in this moment as a congregation because we recognize we need you. Lord, if we're going to understand this, if we're going to even come close to marveling at what you're telling us here in Scripture that is God-breathed, oh, Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to do that. So, Lord, I do pray, would you open our eyes to behold the wonders of your law today? Would you invoke our hearts? And would the fruit and effect of this be that our affections would grow for you? Amazed. Amazed. That you would call our names. In Jesus' name. Amen. Many moons ago... I went to university in Cardiff, Wales, to study civil engineering. And I studied civil engineering because I like problem solving. I like it when people give me problems and you can't figure out what to do with it, so you try and figure it out. So I enjoyed trying to work out how bridges work. I wanted to do coastal defences so that you can stop the sea from claiming land. I just thought that was a big problem and something that would be good to solve. I found that fascinating. And yet one of the challenges within a personality like mine and an inclination like mine is it can be really difficult when I can't figure something out. 
You know what I'm saying? When you're given a problem and you just cannot figure it out. It's just like going into a room where people are clearly talking and then as you walk in the room, they stop talking. You ever had that? It's horrible. It's clear that they're discussing something really important. You know, they're chatting away and you come in and they go, oh yeah. <clears throat> it's horrible because you just know clearly they've got a secret that they don't want to share with you. That's what it feels like in my life when something is given to me by way of a problem that I just can't figure out. I don't like secrets. I don't like problems that I can't figure out. Well, if you are like me, then you need to know from the outset of today, we come to a topic in terms of sovereign grace, how our relationship began with the Lord, that is shrouded with mystery. And you're not going to figure it all out. We're not going to be able to understand it all today in its entirety. It is shrouded with mystery, literally secrets, that God is deliberately keeping from us. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says it this way. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. And so in the Bible, there are things that are revealed that God shows us really easy. And he says, hey, this is, these are for you and your children. But there's secrets. Things that I'm going to show you part, but I'm not going to explain it to you all. And today, when we come to the topic of sovereign grace, the doctrine of election, we come to one of those things. This is a hard topic. We are swimming in the deep end of the theological pool when we address topic of sovereign grace. So bear with me as we do that. But that shouldn't surprise us. It should not surprise us that biblically defined, if the one we've been singing to this morning is truly as great as we believe him to be, it shouldn't surprise us that we can't figure it all out. J. Rodman Williams says it this way in his full Bible commentary. He says, because all Christian doctrine relates to God, who is ultimately beyond our comprehension, there will inevitably be some element of mystery, some element of mystery that cannot be reduced to human understanding. Yet, nevertheless, within these limits, the theological effort must be carried on. I think that's so well put. There will be things about God... That as Christians, we can't understand, we can't get it all in our tiny little minds because he is great and we're not. And yet, nonetheless, within those limits of understanding, we're not going to get it all. Our theological understanding, our efforts must be carried on. And so John Calvin, the wonderful John Calvin, on the topic of election, says this. This is his counsel to us as we discuss sovereign grace. He says, the subject of predestination which in itself is attended by considerable difficulty, is also rendered very perplexed and hence perilous to human curiosity, which can then struggle to be constrained from wandering into forbidden paths. Isn't that helpful? There's something in us that just wants to, I want to understand it all. It's human curiosity. And so it's perilous. Yet he writes those secrets of his will which he has seen fit to manifest, are revealed in his word. Revealed insofar as he knew to be conducive to our interest and welfare. Therefore let it be our first principle that to desire any other knowledge of predestination than that which is expounded in the word of God is no less infatuated than to walk where there is no path or to seek light in darkness. Listen. The best rule of sobriety is not only in learning to follow wherever God leads, but also in learning that when he makes an end of teaching, 
to cease from wishing to be wise. What wonderful counsel. There are forbidden paths, but there are paths. There are things that God has not showed us in Scripture, how this all works, exactly between his divine sovereignty and our human responsibility. It's shrouded in mystery of how it all works. Our tiny minds can't understand it. They're the secret things that belong to the Lord, and yet he has revealed some of it to us for our good and his glory. And so, as Mr. Rodman Williams says, our theological efforts then must be carried on. Because here we have a doctrine that can change your life. It can stir affections in your life as you realize this is how it started. Not with me. With him. One of the things I would want you to understand as we look at this doctrine this morning is simply this, that although this doctrine names us as a church, Sovereign Grace Church Sydney, and names us as a family of churches, Sovereign Grace Churches, this doctrine doesn't define us. The gospel defines us. The gospel will always, by the grace of God, while I have the privilege of being your lead pastor, I will do my utmost to do like Spurgeon did and hit that nail again and again and again because the gospel must define us. Christ and him crucified must be the thing that we rally around as a local church and as a region and as a family of churches. This doctrine of sovereign grace does not define us. And so I'd want you to be assured that we don't believe for a moment that to be a Christian, you have to believe in the doctrine of sovereign grace to be saved. It's not true. I grew up in a church, a small church. It was a Pentecostal church. I never heard the doctrine of sovereign grace preached in my life. I didn't understand any of it. I didn't have a clue what this even meant. I think I'm not even sure I ever read Ephesians chapter 1. It just didn't seem that important. I grew up in a church that this doctrine was never, ever taught. And yet I grew up in church with some of the best and kindest Christians I know, who love the Lord with all their heart, who are seeking to live for Jesus with all their heart. So you don't have to believe in this doctrine to be saved. And also I'd want you to be assured that we don't just offer our hands of unity to other Christians who stand in full agreement with us on this doctrine. Now, we stand with other Christians who stand in agreement with us in the gospel, not on this issue. And I think we can learn a lot from Mr. Spurgeon, one of my heroes. He writes as follows. He says, We give our hand to every man who loves the Lord Jesus Christ, be he what he may, or be who he may. The doctrine of election, like the great act of election itself, is intended to divide not between Israel and Israel, but between Israel and the Egyptians. Not between saint and saint, but between saint and children of the world. A man may be evidently of God's chosen family, and yet though elected, may not believe in the doctrine of election. I hold that there are many savingly called that do not believe in effectual calling, And that there are a great many who persevere to the end who do not believe in the doctrine of final perseverance. Yet we do not set their fallacies down to any willful opposition to the truth as it is in Jesus, but simply to an error in their judgments. And we pray that God will correct that. We hope that if they think us mistaken too, that they will reciprocate the same Christian courtesy. And he says this, I love this. 
And when we meet around the cross, which defines us, we hope that we shall then forever feel that we are one in Christ Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? That is big-hearted. That is magnanimous. It's wonderful. And I want us to be like that. I want us to be like that as a, as a region of church and as a family of churches. This truth of sovereign grace does not define us. The gospel must define us. But it is dear to us. It's important to us. And God's given it to us for a reason. Because this is God-breathed and useful and profitable. So I want us to review it. I want us to see it. I want us to be taught on it. And so what is it? What is the doctrine of sovereign grace? Well, here it is in a nutshell. It's the understanding that in salvation, we're here only because God chose us. That's the doctrine of election. That before the foundations of the world even went in, he chose us. And in love, he predestined us for adoption. That before it even began, he called your names one by one and chose you to be predestined to adoption and be part of his family. Now, that's a doctrine that runs throughout Scripture. It is a biblically defined truth that is there in the entirety of Scripture. I remember reading John Piper on this in The Pleasures of God. And he talks about how this doctrine appears on every third page. Being the type of guy I am, I checked it, you know, just to make sure. And the truth is, it is there an awful lot. You know, when you look at the words election or chosen, it's a theme that runs through the entirety of Scripture. God's choice, God's choice, his pursuit, his sovereignty. Jesus then himself, in John chapter 6, verse 37, says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And you realize, so this starts with the Father. He's giving people, giving people that he's chosen before the foundation of the earth to the Son, and then the Son holds them for all eternity because all that he is given, not one will he lose. Not one will he ever lose. In Acts chapter 2, we find people asking, you know, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent, be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit for this is for you, your children, and for all who are far off. Sometimes preachers stop right there. <laughs> Mistake. For this is for you, your children, and for all who are far off. Listen, for all whom, whom the Lord will call to himself. Oh. So it's for everybody. All who the Lord will call to himself. It's him. And then all the way through the scriptures, we read about God's elect, we read about God's choosing, and then we come to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, where we read, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the earth, in love he predestined us for adoption. Joe Packer, in helping define it more broadly for us, says this. He says, the biblical doctrine of election is the truth that before creation, God selected out of the human race, foreseen as fallen, those whom he would redeem, bring to faith, justify and glorify in and through Jesus Christ. This defined choice is an expression of free and sovereign grace, for it is unconstrained and unconditional, not merited by anything that is in its subjects. God owes sinners no mercy of any kind, only condemnation. 
So it is a wonder and a matter of endless praise that he should choose to save Ennius. And doubly so. And doubly so when his choice involved the giving of his son to suffer as a sin bearer for the elect. The doctrine of sovereign grace shows us that we're here only because God chose us. He's at the bottom of it all. And you know, that does give us a number of questions, doesn't it? So without doubt, we have to be careful not to wander onto forbidden paths. But we need to understand. We need to understand what is God revealing to us in Scripture? Why is he making it real clear here that it all started with him? Well, I want to try and answer three questions then at our remaining time to try and help you, to try and assist you, to try and draw you to this Scripture so that your affections for the Savior may grow. Here's the first. Number one. But... Didn't I choose him? Have you not thought that? I certainly did. I remember when my pastor was, when I was 19, and I first heard this doctrine, I hated it with a passion, with a like full-on Dave Taylor passion. It was like, this is ridiculous. And I remember chatting to my life group leader about it and saying to him, this is ridiculous. What do you think about it? He said, oh, I completely agree with it. I'm like, oh my gosh, they've got you as well. You know, I was just appalled. I just thought, this is crazy. Because in my mind... It just seemed crazy. I mean, I remember when I chose God, right? I remember it in my mind. I chose a date. I remember the day. I remember the moment. I remember where I was when I chose to put my faith in Jesus Christ, when I became amazed by grace. And maybe you think of your salvation the same way. You remember it specifically. And so the assumption is, but didn't I choose him? And the answer to that is, yeah, you did. Make no mistake, you did choose him. And if you hadn't, you would still not be saved. Romans chapter 9 tells us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Something we need to actively do. It's not going to church that saves us. It's not growing up in a Christian home that saves us. It's a decision, a response, a personal response to the finished work of Jesus Christ. You must choose to put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior for you to be saved. But here's also the truth. You're only able to do that because he chose you first. You're only able to do that because of his prior work in your life. You only chose him because he first chose you. You only chose him because of the father's prior sovereign work in your life. And in God's kindness then, you only came to Jesus because of his prior work in your life, choosing you and drawing you to his son. Now, biblically defined, salvation always involves God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Now, people say that you have to choose between the two, but the Bible preaches both. (laughs) We can't choose between the two. Because the Bible preaches that both are true. We must make a decision to follow Christ. Otherwise, we're not saved. And yet we'd never be able to do that without his saving grace work in your life. It would never have happened. Well, how does that work? Forbidden path. Don't know. But both are true. Both are declaimed in Scripture. Both are important. And both are preached in Scripture. And yet, if you had to pick a decisive factor, this is what you need to understand, if there was a defining and determining factor out of the two, the emphasis, without doubt, would be on God's sovereign grace. And here's why it would be. Because in Ephesians chapter 2, we read that we were dead 
and our transgressions and sins. That's important. See, I think sometimes we misunderstand the reality of where our situation was. I think sometimes we think, you know, okay, so let me just get it straight. I was, I was drowning in the sea. I'm by myself. And I realized I'm drowning. I need a saviour. Help me. And the saviour comes rowing along. We're whistling. We're shouting. And in grace, he plucks me from the water. And he gets me in the boat and we go home. Thank you, Jesus. No. You are not in the water with your arm in the air screaming for attention. You were in the water, dead and drowned. You were floating three feet under. And then the Savior came rowing towards you. And he dived in in grace. And he plugged you from the water and got you into the boat. And he breathed life in your, into your lifeless, dead bones. At which point you, you coughed and spluttered and you said, Oh, oh, help me! And he saved you. And took you home. And all the time you think, oh, it was me. No, you were dead. If he hadn't dived in and breathed life into your lifeless bones, you never would have called for him. You would have just stayed dead. Uninterested him in every way. And so the scripture teaches us that God's sovereignty and our responsibility are taught as equally and important necessities in salvation. They're both taught as important. And yet the reality and life-defining truth is that you only chose him because he chose you first. Anthony Hikima in Saved by Grace says it this way wonderfully. He says, The decisive factor in determining who is to be saved from sin is not the decisions of the human beings concerned, but the sovereign grace of God. Though human decision does play a significant role in the process, it is his sovereign grace that stands as the determining factor. We therefore must affirm both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, both God's sovereign grace and our active participation in the process of salvation. For we can only do justice to biblical teaching if we firmly hold onto both sides of the paradox. But since God is the creator, and we are his creatures, God must have the priority. Hence we must maintain that the ultimately decisive factor in the process of our salvation is the sovereign grace of God. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. You weren't cheering for him. You were looking for help. You were dead. You were uninterested. And yet he dived in and breathed life into your bones. And that's why you're here today. Because he chose you. Charles Haddon Spurgeon talks in his book, All of Grace, about the moment when he realized this to be true. He was sitting in a sermon, and here's what happened. He says, when I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert is at first aware of this. I can recall the very day and hour when I first received those truths, the doctrine of election, in my own soul when they were, as John Bunyan said, burned into my soul as with a hot iron. And I can recollect how I felt that I'd grown all of a sudden from a babe to a man that I had made progress in scriptural knowledge through having found once and for all 
that clue to the truth of God. One weeknight, when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it. Obviously, it wasn't the best. The thought struck me, how did you come to be a Christian? That triggers an internal conversation. and I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should have not sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I. But then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures, but... How came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then in a moment, I saw. I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me and from that doctrine I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. Now, wonderful. Sit in there. Just thinking, I've done it all. Then in a moment, you realize, how came I to pray? I already prayed because I read. But how came I to read? And as he goes through the motions, he realizes, this was you. This was you coming after me. This was all your work. You know, maybe you're here today and you're nearly saved. You've not been a part of Sovereign Grace that long. You haven't long been a Christian. Or maybe you're new to Sovereign Grace. And you just missed this memo in the starting point series somehow. And maybe you've grown up in a Christian home and you just thought, ah, I'm just here because I know I've always been here. I became a Christian because my parents taught me it and I believed it. And, oh. Listen, your, your salvation story is a miracle. Your salvation story is a miracle of sight. If Jesus hadn't breathed life into you and given you the faith to see him, you would have never seen him. But the story is even better than that. Prior to either, before even giving you that sight, If the Father hadn't chose you, the sight would have never been given. It's all his work. Salvation is all of grace. You're ultimately here because God chose you. And so as you walk through the cross, you came in on the premise of whosoever will. And you were no doubt amazed. Donald Gray Barnhouse uses this illustration of how people walk through the cross and they come in just realizing whosoever will. And they're like, this is sweet. I choose you. I'm in. And they're the other side glorifying God. thinking, This is amazing. Look at everything Jesus did for me. And then as they look back at the cross on this side, above the cross, it simply says chosen from the foundation of the earth. And they wonder like we do. How did that happen? I remember choosing him that side. Well, there's a degree of mystery. But one thing's for sure, if he hadn't chose you before the foundation of the world, you wouldn't be here. You know, the next question that I think then that raises in our minds, understandably, if this is true that God chose me and that's the only reason why I'm here, then why me and not others? What about all them guys? And that can seem a little unfair. I remember some years ago when I was still at Christchurch UK and we were singing an old Sovereign Grace song called Haven't You Been Good? And we were getting really into it. It was awesome. And there's this great line in there that says, Out of millions lost, thank you, Lord, for saving me. And I'm just singing it. This is like, yeah, absolutely, out of millions lost, Lord, thank you for saving me. And this guy comes up afterwards, taps me on the shoulder and said, That is an appalling line, isn't it? That is so arrogant, so horrible. 
That God would choose us and not the other 999,999. That's horrible. I don't want to sing about that. It's just appalling. It's arrogant to assume that. Out of millions lost. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. I can't get excited about that. He was really upset. And I think in honesty, he was really upset because he totally misunderstood sovereign grace. And he totally misunderstood the reality of the reality of the matter. Mark Webb, I think, explains the reality of what really goes on wonderfully. This is what he says. After giving a brief survey of these doctrines of sovereign grace, I asked for questions from the class. One lady in particular was quite troubled. She said, this is the most awful thing I've ever heard. You make it sound as if God is intentionally turning away men and women who would be saved, receiving only the elect. I answered her in this vein. You misunderstand the situation. You're visualizing that God is standing at the door of heaven and men are thronging in the door and God is saying to various ones, yes, you may come, but not you. And you, but not you, and so on. Yet the situation is hardly this. God stands at the door of heaven with his arms outstretched, inviting all to come. Yet all men, without exception, are running the opposite direction towards hell, as hard as they can go. So God, in election, graciously reaches out and stops this one and that one, and this one over here and that one over there. And effectually draws them to him by changing their hearts, making them willing to come. Election keeps no one out of heaven who would have otherwise have been there. But keeps a whole multitude of sinners out of hell who otherwise would have been there. Were it not for election, heaven would be an empty place. And hell would be bursting at the seams. That kind of response, grounded as I believe that is in the scriptural truth, does put a different complexion on things, doesn't it? If you perish in hell, blame yourself, as it is entirely your fault. But if you should make it to heaven, credit God, for that is entirely his work. To him alone belong all praise and glory, for salvation is all of grace from start to finish. How wonderful. God is not standing at the doorway to heaven and saying, all right, Anybody who wants in, come to me. That is what he's saying. But then there's not like a whole line of people forming. He's saying, whosoever will, put your faith in my son and you can enter in. And people in their millions run the other way. Uninterested. Don't care at all. Not looking for the Lord at all. Dead in their transgressions and sins. Freely following the course of the power of the air in the world. Freely doing their thing, opposing the Lord in their lives, naturally in their sin. So God is not standing at the gate of heaven saying, okay, okay, so you all want in, mm, don't like you very much, don't like you very much, I'll have you, yeah, that's quite nice. He's not doing that at all. God is aware that people are running in their millions that way, and so he runs after us in the personal work of the Son, and for some he grabs our legs and arrests our soul and breathes life into our eyes. That's the reality of sovereign grace. And so when seen appropriately, the question shouldn't, I think, be why me and not others in an angry tone? The question should be, Lord, why me? 
because I was running from you. And I was not interested in you. And I wasn't pursuing you at all. And yet now I do. I love you. Why me? When it comes to the question of why me and not others, this is where it's hard for us in our pride. But we have to understand there's a forbidden path there. God doesn't give us the answers of ultimately why you and not others. And even in reality, when it comes to the question of why me, he doesn't give you all the answers. What we do know is he's not looking down through time and saying, hey, I saw what a good person you'd be, so hey, I chose you. It was simply his divine, sovereign grace and love alone. It's the only reason why you're here. So question three then. How then should we respond? If this is true, if this is taught in Scripture for a reason, given to us by God as God-breathed truth, it always commands a response. It's always here for a reason. He wants to tell us things. So how do we respond? Well, three things. Number one, we respond with humility before God. You know, Christians, as I've said before, I really believe, Bible-believing Christians should be the humblest people on the planet. They should be the people walking in to sing God's praises, shaking their heads, amazed. Lord, why me? How, how do I get to do this? Lord, Lord why, why me? People shouldn't be walking in arrogant when they understand the doctrine of sovereign grace. They should be humble to the core, just amazed that I get to sit amongst you. Staggered that God would come after me. Mark Webb says it this way. He says, God intentionally designed salvation so that no man might boast of it. He didn't merely arrange it so that boasting would be discouraged or kept to a minimum. He planned it so that boasting would be absolutely excluded. Election does precisely that. And sovereign grace, that's why for me, I want us to not only hold to election, I want us to revel in it. Because it's when we revel in it, we don't just hold to it and say, oh yeah, I believe that. No. <laughs> when we revel in it, it functions in our life, creating humility in our life. Because we become amazed. Amazed. And so when we're talking then about serving or, or giving or giving our lives away to others, hey, that's a no-brainer because I'm just staggered that I'm here. I'll do anything. Just, just let me be a part. Because it's a staggering that I'm a part at all. Charles had the Spurgeon. Oh, look how sovereign grace had a humbling effect on his life. I believe in the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure that he chose me before I was born or else he would never have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me. For I never could find any reason in myself. I could never find any reason in myself why he should look upon me with such special love. Friends, our salvations 
are all of grace. How does this all work? I don't know. But it should humble us. It should stagger us. As we realize, had it not been for him, I would have never chosen him. It should also, I think, in terms of response, provoke gratitude towards God in our hearts. Gratitude for all he has done. So that's our second response with gratitude towards God. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, For considering your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. My friends, we have loads to boast in, do we not? We were dead in our transgressions and sins. We should be numbered among the masses who right now are not worshipping Jesus, but are pursuing everything else that they want to give themselves to in their lives. We should have been numbered among them. And yet in grace, Jesus Christ not only died in our place, but before there was even time, he chose us for making that ineffectual reality. He's done it all. Our salvation is all of grace and that's worthy of celebrating like Jesse's exhorting us at the start. If this is true, this is the best news you will ever hear in your life. That's why we don't want to be the chosen frozen. You know what I mean? It it just shouldn't be like that. Oh, this is amazing. Calvary. Oh, you did it all. Hmm. What was for lunch? It just doesn't make sense. It should grip our hearts in a way that this is amazing. No one should have to really exhort us to worship. Our heart should exhort us to worship as we realize what he's done. Because this is staggering truth. Packer says it this way. He says, To know that from eternity, my maker, for seeing my sin, for loved me and resolved to save me, though it would be at the cost of Calvary. To know that the divine son was appointed from eternity to be my saviour. And that in love, he became man for me and died for me and now lives to intercede for me and will one day come in person to take me home. To know that the Lord who loved me and gave himself up for me and who came and preached peace to me through his messengers has by his spirit raised me from spiritual death to life-giving union and communion with himself and has promised to hold me fast and never let me go. This is knowledge that brings overwhelming gratitude and joy. It should. That's the way this should function in our lives. As we realize, Lord, I don't fully understand it, but how can this be? You chose me. This is staggering, even though it would be at the cost of your only son. In my place. But you chose me. I did choose you. Lord, I wasn't even interested in you. I would have never been interested in you. But you chose me. Oh, gratitude. Joy. 
And here's the third response when it comes to how do I think we should respond to this truth. I think we should respond, number three, with fresh affection for God. And my friends, this in return, as we go towards closing, brings us back to where we began. See, when I was chatting to that couple last week, and they're introducing each other to me, and they started to discuss their past, and, oh yeah, we met, we were at a musical, it was so wonderful. And they started to give me this big long story. I literally could have left, and they wouldn't have noticed Because their affections for one another were being so stirred as they retold their stories. But as your pastor, who has the privilege of preaching to you, here's my hope. That as I now move away, you'll be so affected by this, that your relationship with Jesus will be affected to the core again. Because he's who it's all about. And as you then rehearse your start of your relationship, realizing it was all him. He chose me before the foundation of the earth. He then died at Calvary so that I might be forgiven and redeemed and justified and adopted so that heaven could be my home. And he made all this possible by dying in my place. As you rehearse your story of how you met, I think affection will be your theme. And may it all be for the glory of God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we rehearse our stories... As we remember how it all began, it is your face we see before us. Lord, for each and every one of us, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't your face that we saw before us. Lord, you are the one that arrested our souls, chosen before the foundation of the earth. You arrested our souls at the right time and you pulled us from the water. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. And you breathed life into our lifeless bodies. Oh Lord, did you forgive us then for times when in arrogance we assume it was me. I did it all. Oh Lord, would we make our boast and our constant confession. Oh no, I did nothing. I brought my sin to the party. He did everything for me. Oh Lord, would that humble us? Would it make us grateful? And would it cultivate fresh affection for you? Because you are everything. Lord, would you be the apple of our eyes each and every day of our lives? Because our lives are because of you. And would we never forget that? In Jesus' name, amen.